Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, says, When Joshua was by Jericho, and this is kind of Joshua's claim to fame. I mean, he's got a whole book after his name, but this is like the story that really put him on the map. Joshua and the walls of Jericho. If you grew up in Sunday school, or maybe even come to church here for a while, you've probably heard the story. Joshua is the commander of Israel, and he takes the army, and they walk around these walls, these impenetrable walls, and God works this miracle. The walls fall down. That's the story, but we haven't got to that point yet. Where we're reading is what happens before that. So it says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, Joshua recognized this is not just any ordinary man. So he goes up to him and he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? How many think that's a pretty good question? Like, you see a guy with a sword, I want to know, are you friend or foe? Are, are you for me or against? I don't think that's a bad question. But the man says, no. Excuse me? I don't even know if you heard the question right. Are you for us or for our enemies? No. That doesn't even make sense. But he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's kind of a strange passage, especially if you're not familiar with the book of Joshua. It kind of catches us off guard. And that's fitting because I have kind of a strange title for you. I'm calling this message, if you're taking notes, you want to write it down. God is not on your side. Now, before you pick up stones and throw them at me for heresy. I want to explain what I'm talking about here. First of all, obviously, God is for you. God loves you. This is the gospel message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. Scripture says that this is how God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. He is for you. But I want to use this passage and this title to speak to you about a subject I have never preached on before. And it's crazy because I've been doing this for like nine years, over nine years now. And I mean, I can't think of one sermon where I've talked about this, but that means that this could either be like maybe one of the most helpful things I've ever done or the stupidest. So I'll let you decide. But I want to talk to you about your politics, your politics. And I'm, I'm going to tell you God is not on your side. And I want to use this really, why would I talk about this? Because the truth is now, and I mean, most of us have been living in this world all year, but for the next couple of weeks, most of us are dealing with this. We're talking about it around our kitchen table. We're being blasted out of every side, all kinds of ads and all of this, and I just figure if you're talking about it in your home, I want to talk about it in God's house. I want to give you a biblical perspective. I want to try and help you. I want to try and give you uh, some encouragement on how to move forward and really 
what this looks like in a kingdom culture. Can I do that today? Can you allow me to do that today? So I want to pray because I believe I need God's help. And uh, I have a hunch you might need God's help too. And so let's, let's pray and ask for God's help today. God, would you help me? Would you help me to communicate your word accurately and honestly and not my ideas or opinions, but really what you would have said? God, we want to hear from you. God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind to know, a heart to receive all that you have for us. God, your words are life. So I pray that this would be an encouraging and a helpful message to everybody today in Jesus' name. And everybody who agrees with that can say amen. Amen. Hey, have you ever played this game called Would You Rather? Have you ever played that game, Would You Rather? If you have, I think it's an actual board game that you can buy, but I never play the board game. I just play this game of asking questions to my kids all the time. Would you rather? And the premise of the game is this. You put people in these weird binary predicaments that really nobody would choose in their right mind. Like this would never be a choice, but you have to choose. You have to choose one, and you got to explain your reason for choosing them. And uh, if you don't know, just give you an example. Like, like an easy one would be, would you rather live in a cave or a treehouse? Would you rather live in a cave? Or, let's just play along. If you're watching this online at home, you can type in the chat. Would you rather live in a cave or a treehouse? So cave people, you'd rather live in a cave. Can we see all the cave people? Um, not very many Batman fans, obviously. Um, treehouse people, you would rather live in a treehouse Yes, like me, you must have grown up on the Swiss Family Robinson. That place was awesome. Um, let's try a few more, get a little more participation. Would you, would, you rather, would you rather be attacked by every bird that sees you, or would you rather be attacked by every dog that sees you? Okay? How many of you, you would rather be attacked by every bird outside? You'd rather be attacked by every bird that sees you? Okay. All right. How many of you would rather be attacked by every dog that sees you? Okay, we're kind of split. Some of you are not participating, by the way. This is not the way this game works. You have to choose. You have to. All right, we'll try one more. Uh, would you rather, would you rather say out loud everything that you read, or would you rather sing everything that you say? Okay, let's try that. You would rather, everything you read, you have to read it out loud. Can I see your hands? You, you read something. The words on the screen right now, you would have to read them out loud. Okay, everything you read, you have to read out loud. You would rather sing everything that you say. Sing everything. Okay, if you have a good voice, you can audition for a worship team. <laughs> Otherwise, don't bother. <laughs> it's... Uh, I play this game with my kids, and uh, this is great parenting, by the way. Um, this, this, I, pro tip, parents out there, future parents, this is how you parent. Because you say to your kids, would you rather set the table or do the dishes? You don't say, would you set the table, please. No. It's, this is the choice. Would you rather set the table or do the dishes? I ask my kids, I say, would you rather go to bed or get a spanking? Just this is the choice that you have. But did somebody amen that? That is hilarious. Preaching to somebody. I've, I do this so much with my kids. It's kind of morphed now. Like just the most ludicrous, absurd things that you would never choose in your right mind. Now I've almost switched it to like I try and play to their loyalty. I'm trying to get their information. I'm like, would you rather 
stay home with boring mommy? Or would you rather come with fun daddy? I'll buy you Starbucks. We'll get some candy. Which one would you rather do? Who do you love more? That's what I'm really after. Who do you love more, mommy or daddy? It's always mommy, I, no matter how hard I try. It's always, it's always I'm just trying to uh, get some affirmation and appease my ego, whatever I can do. The point I'm trying to make in this whole scenario, I, I'm not suggesting to you that every time we're given a choice, it's a no-win situation. I'm not saying that. There are good choices you can make, and there are bad choices you can make. And sometimes when there's not clear good and bad choices, there are better choices you can make, and there are more optimal choices or less optimal choices you can make. And I would tell you, Scripture, there is good and there is evil. There is light and there is darkness. There is a kingdom way and there is an anti-kingdom way. And that's why this text is so interesting to me because in the context of the passage, the dialogue really catches me off guard. And I need to explain why. If you're not familiar with Joshua, I need to give you a little bit of background. Joshua was the commander of the armies of Israel. You could even say Joshua was the commander of the Lord's army. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. See, Israel was God's people. They are God's people. That is an undeniable, indisputable fact. In the text, Israel is God's people. 500 years prior to what we're reading, God made a covenant with a man named Abram. Changed his name to Abraham. He said, I am going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bring a people through you and through you and through this people all the earth will be blessed. God made a covenant with this man named Abram, changed his name to Abraham 500 years earlier, prior to this. But for centuries after Abram died and he had a son, another son, and his people began to expand, the Israelites, that's where they, Jacob had his name changed to Israel, the Israelites, so the sons of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're enslaved, become enslaved by the Egyptians and for 400 years, they're slaves, and God raises, he doesn't forsake them, though. He, he raises up a man named Moses to be their deliverer. Moses delivers the Israelites out of Egypt, but now where we're reading, Moses has died. And Joshua has been tasked with this challenge of leading them into this land that God promised to Abraham 500 years earlier. That's where we're at. And Joshua chapter 5 it's significant because it's a transitional passage. You see, they're about to go in to settle prior they've just been surviving. They're about to go in and fight some battles. Prior to this, they've just been wandering. And right before this passage happens, God works an incredible miracle. He, he leads them across the Jordan River. It was at a flood stage. It dries up the land. You can read about it in the earlier chapters of Joshua. And they know they're about to fight a battle, and they know that they cannot do this in their own strength and their own power. So they decide, we need to get God's help. We need God on our side. We're, we're going to consecrate ourselves. They do this in a couple different ways. One, that they cross the Jordan River, and they say, let's build an altar to God. we got to remember what God has done here. All the 12 tribes, they take these stones, pile them up. Let us never forget how God worked on our behalf. 
After that, Joshua says, all right, all of the males need to be circumcised. I know it's a little early on Sunday morning for this, but just go with me. This was a covenant command that God had given the nation of Israel, given Abraham as a sign that they were supposed to be different from the world. All right, that, that we have a special relationship. Uh, he brought his promise fulfilled in a, in a powerful way. And so this was a covenant sign that, that you're different. And even though Moses had delivered them in Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And all of the new Israelites that were born, the males, were not circumcised while they were wandering in the wilderness. So Joshua says, hey, we need to renew our covenant. We need to consecrate ourselves. We need to, this is important. This is who we are. God's called us to be different. So all the males get circumcised. And then they observe the Passover. The Passover is all in Joshua 5. The Passover was a feast and celebration remembering what God had done, how he had worked miracles, bringing them out of Egypt. So they do all this stuff to consecrate themselves to God. That's why this passage blows my mind. Because Joshua sees this angel, and in my mind, he asks him a seemingly innocent question. Are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And he says, no. Not even acknowledging the question, like, you are asking the wrong question here, Joshua. Now, again, I just want to point out to you, this is not complicated. Israel is God's chosen people. God chose them. God delivered them. God protected them. He worked miracles on their behalf. In the Israelites' mind, there is no mistake about it. God's on their side. They've consecrated themselves to God. They're remembering what God has done. They're worshiping God. And I do want to be clear. God is for them. Just like God is for you. God is for you. But I need to explain what's going on here. Because the problem isn't that Joshua has a wrong belief. That God would be for the Israelites. The problem Joshua is asking the wrong question. He's asking the wrong question. And God this angel was opposed to it. Here's what I want you to know. As I get into this, write this down. God's opposition is your division. God's opposition is your division. Joshua sees this man, but this is no ordinary man. This man has a sword. And I don't know if you have ever walked up on a man with a sword in his hand, but the only reason you have a sword in your hand is if there is something that you oppose. But he doesn't oppose Joshua. It's not Joshua that he opposes. And I got to explain this text just a little bit more because what we're seeing here in this encounter just goes beyond an angelic encounter. This particular instance of Joshua encountering a man with a sword is what is known as a Christophany. Oh, that's a weird word. Why don't you say it with me? Christophany. Let's try it. So we'll, we'll count to three. Ready? One, two, three. Christophany. And you guys are so smart. I mean, most people have to go to four years of seminary just to figure this out. But you, you came to one Sunday at Velocity Church, and you are already smarter than the average Christian. A Christophany. What is a Christophany? It is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Well, I'll explain it in the text. But this man that Joshua encounters, this is no ordinary man. 
This is the same man that we read about in Genesis chapter 16 who appears to Hagar and encourages her and comforts her after she has been kicked out by Sarah. This is no ordinary man. This is the same man who we read about in Genesis chapter 18 who shows up at the door of Abraham's tent and says to Sarah that you will have a son in your old age. This is no ordinary man that Joshua has seen in Joshua chapter 5. This is the same man that we read about in Genesis 32, who on the night before Jacob was going to see his brother Esau, wakes him up and wrestles him. This is the same man. This anonymous man is no ordinary man. This man is a picture of Jesus. It's a Christophany. And the reason this is, an import this is important is because there's a connection that we've got to make here. It's a connection I want to make with what we see in the Gospels. If you read through the Gospels, there's something that always happens to Jesus. It's fascinating. What you see is that everybody always wanted Jesus on their side. Time and time again, people would come to Jesus and they would ask him a question and they would try and corner him and capture him and trap him and categorize him and classify him and box him in because they wanted Jesus on their side. I could show you lots of different examples, but uh, one example, you just write this down, it's not in my notes. Uh, one example that's worth looking at for yourself is found in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 13, there are these two groups that do not like each other that come to Jesus, and it specifically says these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they went to Jesus to try to trap him, to catch him in something that he said. Now, it's important to know that the Pharisees, these were anti-Rome people. In the times of Jesus, the Jews were under Roman oppression. And so the Pharisees were anti-Rome because they believed that the Roman Empire imposed injustices upon the Jewish way of life. The Herodians, though, these were pro-Roman people. They were pro-Roman people because there were some benefits to living in Rome. Some of the benefits, like Rome came with some luxuries. Rome came with some affluence. Rome came with some technology. Rome, living in Rome was not all bad. So the Herodians were pro-Rome. The Pharisees were anti-Rome. And they come to Jesus with a question to try and trap him. You've probably heard the story before, but they, they, they come to Jesus and this is how they approach him. They say, teacher, rabbi, we know that you don't pander to anybody. We know that you speak the true word of God. We know that you don't care about public opinion. Can you see what they're doing? They're trying to paint him into a corner. And so they ask him this question. They say, so tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was not a tax question. This was a hot-button political issue of the day. Because this was a special tax. It was called a kingdom tax. And by paying this tax, what you were doing is basically submitting and saying that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is king, that Caesar is God. And this, of course, went completely against the Jewish way of life. And then at the same time, to not pay the tax would say that you are a rebel, that you are a threat to the Roman Empire and that you should be executed. So they're trying to paint him into a corner and they say, which is it, Jesus? We know you speak the truth, so whatever you say, it's going to be right. Which side are you on? 
because everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. Well, Jesus, if you know the story, he, he says, well, bring me a coin. And whose image is on the coin? They said Caesar's. So he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, the point of this story is, one, just to illustrate how everybody wanted Jesus on their side, but some people take that to mean, okay, well, we should just keep government things, government things, and spiritual things, spiritual things, and those two things should not intersect or you know, keep our church life, our church life, and our other life, our other life. That's not what's happening here. The coin had Caesar's image. But let me ask you, what has God's image? You do. Your life does. The point isn't, do we just separate our life? No, we're supposed to give to God our lives. All of it. Every area. So God's opposition is your division when you're trying to separate these things. So getting back to our text, Joshua walks up. He sees God holding a sword, not because God is against him, but God does oppose the question. And you see in the response. And if I can be real clear with you, I think a lot of us are asking the wrong questions when it comes to our politics. Now, is Jesus, you know, would he have been a Republican or a Democrat? I mean, that's the question a lot of us ask when we try and put Scripture into it to argue our point, but it's the wrong question. I don't want to stress to you, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be political. I'm not saying that you shouldn't wade into politics. I'm not saying that you shouldn't talk about politics or run for office. I think it's okay. I think it's good. We have people in our church that have run, that are elected officials right now, that you know, are planning to run in the future. I think that's awesome. I'd love to celebrate and applaud and thank all of the people in our church that have this call on their life to serve others in this way. That's all. Really, you think politics is not bad to talk about. Politics, the Latin word, means concerning public affairs. That's the Latin origin. So when you're talking about politics, essentially what you're talking about is the best way to love and serve people. That's a great thing to talk about. What's the best way that we can love and serve people? The problem is that's not what most of us talk about. We're not talking about love. We're talking about fear. We're talking about what somebody will take away. It's the wrong question. What's the solution? Well, the question isn't, is God on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? That, that's what we need to be asking ourselves. And look, I understand everybody wants Jesus on their political side. I get it. I, you know what? I'm encouraged by the fact that Jesus is the endorsement that everybody wants. That's a good thing. But I just want to suggest to you that following Jesus requires putting our faith in front of our politics. Following Jesus means we got to reorder our lives around a new set of values that is evidenced by Jesus' teaching, by his example, by his death, by his resurrection, and by his lordship, by his kingship, by his kingdom. And this is hard to do. And a lot of us think we do it, but we actually don't. But I'm going to show you how. I'm going to help you. So let's get back to the text. Joshua asked the wrong question. And in verse 13, he says, He went to him and he said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Which side are you on? Wrong question. He said, No. No, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now this would have blown Joshua's mind because 
he thought he was the commander of the army of the Lord. But you got to remember who's king. You got to remember who's in charge. And he says, Now I have come. So at this, Joshua fell on his face, worshiped him, and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? He went from being commander to servant. It's a good place for us to move to. Servants of God. God, what do you say? This is a great question. God, what do you want? God, what would you say? Not whose side are you on. God, what would you say to me? What do you want? And I know this is going to surprise you, but I know what God wants. I do. I know who God wants to win this election. Everybody's really nervous. Is he going to say it? Yeah, I, I know. And I'm going to tell you who God wants to win this election. Now, I don't know which candidate. Let me get that out there. But I do know God wants the church to win. I know God wants the kingdom to win. And I know that what determines that is how we respond, not just now, but after. After. People ask me all the time, are you concerned with the election? Yeah, I'm concerned, but I'm more concerned with what happens after. I'm concerned if we're going to remember that we serve a king. I'm concerned if we're going to remember that we're citizens of a kingdom. I'm concerned if we're going to remember that in the kingdom, there is not Jew or Gentile. There is not male or female. There is not red or blue. Now that last part is not in scripture, but the principle is there. In the kingdom, we're one. And Jesus points to this, and he gives us the solution, and I want to point this out to you because apparently Jesus must have known this was coming. Not the election, but the division. And in John chapter 17, the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and before he goes off to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be betrayed by one of his own, mind you, he says a prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer sometimes in Scripture. And it's really interesting what he prays because in his prayer, he gives a prayer request. You know how we ask you to fill out a connection card and we tell you you can put your prayer request on there? Well, if Jesus was here and he was filling that out, this is what would go in that box. Would you like to know what Jesus' prayer request is? Well, he starts this out. He starts this out by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that he may glorify you. So he starts this out and the moment that he's about to be crucified, the hour has come. The moment that we would be most horrified at was the moment that he was going to be most glorified at. Can I say sometimes what it looks like is not what it looks like? You might be freaking out about what's happening, but remember God is actually at work and in control. He is king. He is Lord. So he prays this prayer, and he starts in John 17, 11. He says, I do not ask for these only. He says, I, I keep them in your name. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Who's he talking about? The disciples. That they may be one, even as we are one. Now, you've got to remember, he's talking to the disciples here. Who last week we talked about <laughs> that they are of different backgrounds, different perspectives. They didn't always get along. They fought. I mean, Peter was just telling Jesus last week, God, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? 
And Jesus prays, Lord, make them one. I don't want them divided over what's about to happen. Then it goes on to say in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, not just the disciples, but the future generations of Christians. Jesus is praying this for you. He's praying this for us right now. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. Why? Here's why. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for oneness, but not for our sake. He prayed for oneness so that the world would believe in him. That when the rest of the world is so divided right now over all these different issues, that the people of God who are made up of many different backgrounds and many different perspectives and many different political views and many different financial means and many different social statuses, that the people of God who come from such a variety of different places would come together under the name of Jesus and would declare loyalty to a kingdom that is not of this world. Not a unity of politics, but a unity of purpose. That's the kind of unity that's going to change the world. So how do we do that? Here's a question for you. Are you willing to get off your platform and get on your knees? I think it's the most important question. Because <laughs> it says when Joshua fell on his face and worshiped the Lord, which, by the way, that's the clue that this is a picture of Christ because other places angels do not receive worship. They reject it. He worshiped, and he said, what does my Lord say to his servant? God gives a very interesting instruction. He says, take off your sandals from your feet, and the place for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, we've seen this before. I mean, this is a picture or this is reminding us of what God said to Moses from the burning bush. That's called a theophany. And it got me thinking about all the different times in Scripture where people were told to remove their shoes or they took off their shoes to go in God's presence. Actually, I started studying shoes. Can you believe that? I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but I've never studied shoes in the Bible until last week. I learned so much about shoes. So I was studying this, and I learned, one, how it's, you know, their symbol of status. I learned how they can be a symbol of authority. I learned how that when you remove them, it's a sign of humility. How when you remove them, it can be an act of transfer. There's a transfer that's about to take place. All these different things. And I was trying to think, well, what is God saying in this moment? <laughs> but what's jumped out to me is that I wonder if there's some stuff we need to take off in the way we approach God. I wrote down this phrase that Jesus doesn't want to be a footnote to your platform. A lot of us try and we've got our political beliefs and we'll try and bring Jesus into it, but he doesn't want to be the footnote to your platform. But what really caught my attention is that when God said to Joshua, hey, take them off, 
Because the place where you're standing is holy. He was already on the ground. What's that mean? Well, here's a bonus point for you. Is that you can take a stand on your knees. Look, I'm, I'm not opposed to letting your voice be heard. I'm glad we live in a country where we can. I think absolutely you should vote. Go vote. Run for office. Advocate for more just systems. These are all good things, and we live in a country that affords us the opportunity to do that. But I'm trying to show you kingdom culture today. That this is how we change the world. To not let division creep into the church. Because our world seems to be getting more and more polarized. I want to know where people stand. And you don't even have to try and make your world this way. I mean, just the algorithms in Facebook alone are going to show you the stuff that you want to see or you think you want to see. But when we come to church, people whose worlds would rarely overlap come together under the banner and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the power of kingdom culture. When you choose to pray for someone, when you choose to get on your knees, pray for someone, even somebody that you disagree with, what you find is that what divides you begins to diminish.